Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, we conclude our series on mass shootings in America with a discussion about guns. President Obama said recently that America is facing a gun violence epidemic. He said we are the only advanced country on earth that sees this kind of mass violence erupt with this kind of frequency. It doesn't happen in other advanced countries. It's not even close. And the president announced he's implementing several gun control measures by executive action. A recent UtahPolicy.com survey finds that 76% of Utahns support one of those measures, expanding background checks for gun purchases over the Internet or at gun shows. At the same time, an Associated Press review found that while the measures announced by the president are seen as crucial to stemming gun suicides, that's the cause of two-thirds of gun deaths, by blocking immediate access to weapons, they would have no impact in keeping weapons from the hands of suspects in several of the deadliest recent mass shootings. And while I think most agree that America has a problem with violence, when it comes to guns, we seem to talk past each other. We'll ask our guests today if uh, they think any agreement or collective action on guns is likely or possible. We're going to hear from Liz Peek, columnist for the Fiscal Times, William Rosen, counsel for Every Town for Gun Safety, Penny Okamoto, executive director of Ceasefire Oregon. And at the end of the program, we'll be talking with filmmaker Thomas Wood, who wrote recently in Medium.com that the issue is not guns. The issue is people and their identity with guns. He says we need to change how we talk to each other on this issue. All through the program, I hope you'll email me with your perspective on this important issue. And you can reach us at upraxcess at gmail.com. We're uh, now talking with uh, Liz Peake. Uh, her article appeared recently in the Fiscal Times, and uh, she's responding to President Obama's uh, measures on uh, gun control, which he announced uh, he is going to bypass Congress, uh, do some things by executive order. Um, and, and you point out at the very beginning of your article, uh, Liz Peake, that this is pretty incremental to the point where the NRA didn't really protest that much. Yeah, well, which gives you some flavor for how insignificant some people think the measures that President Obama announced were. Um, And look, I think uh, it's pretty clear that there's a limit uh, legally to what he can accomplish on his own. The first question I would have asked if I were Anderson Cooper, who you may remember interviewed him in an hour-long special about gun control, is how many trips to the Congress, or how many people has he sat down with from Congress to really try and get something done about gun control? The reason we have a system of checks and balances in this country is that executives, the the executive in the White House, the president, is really not meant to do all this by himself. But anyway, leaving that aside, the president undertook to close what he calls the gun hole, uh, (laughs) the gun show loophole, uh, which he has mentioned before, uh, accounts for something like 40% of gun sales. And thankfully, enough people have looked into that assertion that it's pretty widely known now that it's not anywhere like 40% of sales of guns go through this gun show loophole, um, but rather maybe 1% or 4% at the most. And it really is always off-putting, I think, when the president pushes policy based on sort of bogus assumptions Um, The gun show loophole, so-called, has to do with the definition of someone who's in the gun sales business. And what President Obama basically did was tighten that definition a little bit so that, for example, if you're someone who over the course of your lifetime has accumulated a dozen firearms, uh, let's say, 
and is now uh, you're now moving into a retirement home. I'm making this up, needless to say, and you're trying to get rid of them, and you'd want to go to a gun show and simply unload them. You're probably not in the profession of selling guns. On on the other hand, some unscrupulous people can take advantage of that uh, definition, which means you don't have to require uh, a background check on a would-be buyer. Uh, to basically sell guns to people who shouldn't have them. So, look, the intention here is okay. Obama wants to keep hands out of, uh, keep guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them, like the mentally disturbed or people with a criminal background. And the reality is there is some sloppiness in all of that. We know, for example, that the shooter in Charleston uh, had some drug issues which should have meant that he was never allowed to buy a gun. Um, and there, were, there have been other instances where these mass killings are perpetrated by individuals who should have been caught by the system and were not. So Obama wants to add more um, law enforcement officials to the cadre of people who are tasked with enforcing our existing laws, and I think that's perfectly fine. Uh, and he wants to tighten existing laws ever so slightly. Put together, it might move the needle an inch, but certainly not very much. You uh, coach your hair. Uh, keeping guns out of the hands of people who should not have them is essential. Um, so, what would is there something could be done that uh, you think could could pass Congress to to that end? Well, look, a lot of it is simply systems uh, improvement. For example, the communication of information between um, the FBI enforcers and state health authorities. If someone has been committed to a mental institution, maybe that information should be made available to the people doing the background checks. Look, this is a monumental task. There are millions of these checks done every year, so it's not easy. But like as, as has been the case on creating a terror list and other things like that, it is essential that information that pertains to this quest be made available to the people who are looking at the at the uh, person who's buying a gun. And so that, I don't think, requires action from Congress. It really just requires uh, better organization and methodology on the part of our law enforcement and health authorities, and I think they already can do that. You mentioned in the article you, uh, you think that... Uh the timidity of President Obama's proposals, your characterization, may reflect concerns that he's out of step with the country. Um, and I want to I want to pair that with here's a statement from President Obama. And I, I think everyone in the country can get behind the idea that there's a problem. Something needs to be done. The disagreement, of course, is is what to do. Um, so President Obama says every single year, more than 30,000 Americans have their lives cut short by guns. 30,000, he repeated, suicides, domestic violence, gang shootouts, accidents. Hundreds of thousands of Americans have lost brothers, sisters or buried their own children. The president got emotional, of course, in the in the press conference. Um, I wonder what what you think is in step with with what most Americans uh, think and, and could could get done. Well, interestingly, President Obama has a history of taking on subjects uh, and, and basically losing the popular backing uh, for them, whether it is immigration, where we were very close to immigration reform and the country was behind it when he took office, and now attitudes have hardened 
immeasurably, I would argue, because of his uh, DACA Act in 2012 uh, and the, the impact that had on the surge across the border. Ditto uh, climate change, you know, and Obamacare. I mean, think of the big issues before this president where he has talked to Americans, lectured Americans over and over again, and generally speaking, lost the enthusiasm of Americans. Gun control is another one. You know, historically, yeah, gun control polled pretty well. But in mid-December, uh, a CNN poll showed um, 50, 51% opposed stricter gun laws, and only 48% favored that uh, tightening of the rules. I find that pretty astonishing uh, when you consider how much of a pitch the president has made. Now, is he right that we have too many gun deaths? Yes, I think he is right. To keep in mind, of that very large number, some two-thirds are suicides. Now, if you took guns away, are fewer people going to commit suicide? I don't know. Uh, each one is a tragedy, but I'm not sure that the availability of a gun really uh, is what is the motivating factor there or sort of makes the decision whether it's going to happen or not happen. Um, but certainly in a lot of these other cases, there are too many guns, and there are too many guns in the hands of violent people. Uh, domestic abuse. I think he's trying to change the rules on domestic abuse. I think that's a great idea because my understanding is that if you are not actually married, it's a little harder uh, to, in other words, if somebody assaults a woman um, or there's a domestic violence uh, problem, unless they're married, I'm not sure that the police can um, Put that. make sure that the perpetrator no longer is able to buy a gun. I think that's the kind of thing where common sense would tell you a marriage license doesn't really protect a woman in that case or whatever. Uh, but look, I, I talk to an awful lot of people every day who feel that their lives, for whatever reason, are safer because they do have a gun. And that is the problem that he confronts. If you don't make Americans feel secure, they will resort as we have seen over the last several years, to buying guns to protect themselves. And with every lone wolf attack uh, from a terrorist-inspired individual or group, that feeling of insecurity grows. If crime once again begins to rise in our urban areas, then you're going to find people in those regions wanting to own a gun too. That's just the way it's been in this country for an awfully long time, and I don't see it changing. Um, and I guess, what would your prediction be? Not nothing's going to happen in Congress. Uh, certainly, this session, right? Uh, what, I'm what, sure nothing's going to happen in Congress. And don't forget, the Republicans are always blamed for all this. There were several Democrats too who lined up against gun control. Democrats from Western states and even some Middle East, uh, middle uh, of the country states have a very hard time uh, supporting the president on this because their back, their constituents generally do not. So it's a bipartisan resistance uh, that the president has found, um, and I don't think that's going to change. I've heard an argument from the NRA um, saying we don't need more laws. We need to better enforcement of the laws we do have. Do you subscribe to that? Well, I think, yeah, going back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, again, in this closing the so-called loophole, um, that's probably not going to be particularly meaningful. But in terms of better, of, of knowing more, uh, having more information about the people who are trying to get background checks, yes, that could, it, that is, yes, that falls under increased enforcement, and I think that could have some impact. 
We did a uh, just open the phone lines a couple of weeks ago, and just uh, let people talk about our focus was mass mass killings, the mass shootings. Yeah. Um, and we opened it up to any aspect of that, and it turned out to be mostly about guns. Uh, I was interested in a fair number of our callers who uh, were, were trying to find a middle ground. Uh, they they said, I'm a gun, gun owner, but maybe I don't need assault weapons, for example. That, that was a sentiment uh, echoed by a few of our, our callers. Yeah. Well, interestingly, you know, actually, assault weapons per se are illegal in the United States. This is sort of one of these misconceptions. If you actually go online, you can research uh, the... The, they, just as you, just as you and I can't buy a bazooka or a tank, we also cannot buy legally a machine gun. However, it's in the the, the devil's in the details, as they say, uh, and there are plenty of weapons that are rapid fire that uh, allow people to do an enormous amount of damage. And I have to say, I don't know why we need them. You certainly don't need them for hunting, which is a very legitimate uh, gun, you know, activity. Uh, and I, one would hope that you don't need them for self-defense. So I think that's the kind of thing that in a saner, more, less hyperbolic uh, <laughs> environment, we could talk about what kinds of magazines are uh, legitimate and what kinds of guns. But right now, you know, the NRA views all of these things, and so their supporters view all of these things as the classic slippery slope. If you begin to give way on this kind of gun or that kind of rifle, uh, or this kind of magazine, then you are uh, just looking at sort of a series of laws. And they're not entirely wrong. I mean, you know probably that there's a new law in California where if, for example, a family discovers or thinks that their son is unbalanced mentally and has access to weapons, they can call, they can have a hearing in which a judge basically orders the removal of guns from that person's possession without any kind of trial or anything else. I mean, this is uh, a law that went into effect, I think, in 1940, uh, was passed in 2014, is now in effect. And uh, it's, it's quite interesting because it is an example of the slippery slope. And I think the NRA is on that, naturally. They oppose that. Um, but it is that kind of uh, increased litigation if you will, that it alarms gun owners and, and has caused this unbelievable surge in gun buying, um, which really does sort of just unfortunately muddy the waters and make it much, much harder to convince Americans that, um, you know, they don't need to go out and buy a gun. Uh, President Obama, in his, in his speech, he, um, he, he uh, talked on the constitutional level and he noted that uh, mass shootings have recently taken place. Um, as he says, Americans have tried to exercise other rights, such as attending worship services or watching a movie. He went on to say the right to bear firearms is not more important than the right to worship freely or peaceably assemble. Of course, uh, in recent years, the Supreme Court has ruled that uh, Americans do have an individual right to, to bear arms, uh, clearing up that that piece of the Second Amendment, but I, I wonder, on his argument, balancing out our, our various rights, what do you think of what he said? I think all those rights are important, don't you? Oh, certainly. Yeah, so I'm not sure that weighing one against another is meaningful. Uh, I think the Constitution protects a great many very important values and rights, and I think most Americans would agree with that. 
Um, and so when people begin to tinker around the edges, which is kind of what Obama's doing now, that that is what alarms people. And by the way, these mass shootings are horrific. There's no question about it. Whether it's from a white supremacist or whether it's from an ISIS-inspired terrorist group, who cares? They're all dreadful. None of those shootings would have been prevented by the adjustments to the laws that President Obama just put in place. Finally, on the guns, um, I'm interested to get your your opinion, your feelings on how we talk about this. Uh, it's it, it seems like we talk past each other. Gun control, uh, you know, uh, pro-gun control people say that thousands of people dying and uh, guns is obviously the prevalence of guns, obviously the issue. And, uh, you know, on the other side, why can't you see that? And uh, gun rights people say it's... Um, you know, it's it, it's not necessarily the guns; it's who has them, and and more and more we're just talking past each other. I don't know if if you have any ideas about how we actually talk to each other and 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 find what the critical thing is. Of course, an effective solution to the problem. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think you're right that that the positions have hardened. Uh, there really isn't much conversation about this. The good news is, if you want to look at the good news is that in most of the urban cities, um, urban areas, crime rates have gone down. In, ge- in general, in the country, crime rates are going down. So people own lots and lots of guns. And unfortunately, yes, many people are killed by guns every year. But the truth is, the crime rate is lower. And so in many respects, we have made progress um, in stemming the kind of wanton violence that really overshadowed a lot of communities 30 years ago. Um, you know, is there still, uh, you know, do we face new risks today? Yes, we do. Would we face them even if we had the most restrictive gun laws in the world? Yes, we would. I mean, note that California has the strictest gun laws in America, and that's where the San Bernardino shootings took place. I'm afraid uh, at this point in our history, you're not going to prevent all of these occurrences. Uh, I'm not sure how much a reduction in the number of guns would, what difference it would make. Um, but, you know, possibly we can begin to have that dialogue after President Obama leaves office, because now I think he has made this too much of a toxic issue, and I don't think anything's going to happen while he's still in office. Well, we've been talking with uh, Liz Peek and her article uh, column uh, recently appeared in the Fiscal Times responding to President Obama's uh, measures that uh, he announced. Liz Peek, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. It's very much a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're getting several different perspectives on guns and violence. And uh, coming up uh, later in the program, uh, we're going to be uh, hearing from William Rosen, Counsel for Every Town for Gun Safety, and Penny Okamoto. Executive Director of Ceasefire Oregon. We'll also be hearing from filmmaker Thomas Wood, who re- wrote recently in Medium.com that the issue is not guns, the issue is people and their identity with guns. He says we need to change how we talk to each other on this issue. I'm interested to hear your perspective uh, on this important issue. You can email me at upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. More following the break. This is Brian Erickson bringing more to life. It is natural for parents to balk at taking direction from their child, so it's important to be firm and honest, yet sensitive and never patronizing. Providing reassurance can ease your parents' fears. 
Let them know your goal is to help them maintain their independence for as long as possible. Assure them it's okay if they require some assistance to do so. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Thanks for joining me for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are concluding our series on mass shootings in America today with a discussion about guns. We did have a discussion uh, uh, several weeks ago, uh, just an open forum on mass shootings, and uh, that turned into a discussion mostly about guns. And uh, we are hearing uh, some of those perspectives that uh, you gave us uh, in the interviews uh, today. If you'd like to uh, join us with your perspective uh, today, Certainly encourage that. I'd love to know what you think on this issue. And you can reach me at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Later on, uh, to conclude the program, we're going to get a very interesting perspective on this issue from filmmaker Thomas Wood, who wrote recently that the issue is not guns, the issue is people and their identity with guns. He says we need to change how we talk to each other on this issue. And uh, we go next uh, to a couple of different uh, perspectives on this issue. Uh, We will hear next from William Rosen, Counsel for Every Town for Gun Safety, and then uh, hear from Penny Okamoto, Executive Director of Ceasefire Oregon. We are now talking with William Rosen, who's Counsel for Every Town for uh, Gun uh, Safety. Um, I wanted to get your reaction to uh, President Obama's recent announcement. Uh, He is enacting uh, several measures uh, by executive action. Um, what's, what's general reaction from every time? Uh, we are very pleased to see that the president took an important step to move beyond the gridlock of Congress. Um, obviously, Congress uh, has failed and refused to take meaningful action to reduce gun violence. So the president has done what he can, um, and it is uh, meaningful. Um, I believe it would be a fair characterization to uh, to say that your your organization would like more. Uh, I guess specifically uh, would have to come from Congress. Yes. Um, the, again, the president did what he can, and we can go into many of the important actions he took. But, of course, there is much more to be done. Um, Congress at the federal level has failed to enact the most important piece, the single most important piece of that we know saves lives, which is background checks on all gun sales, closing the online or gun sale loophole. So it is squarely in Congress's hands, or increasingly uh, states at the state level are taking responsibility for gun violence prevention and passing this measure um, at the state level. So that's what we want to see. Uh, Associated Press, you're probably familiar with this. Associated Press came out with a, you know, a, a study, a survey, uh, saying that um, the proposals proposed by the president, at least recently, would not have prevented uh, the, many of the recent tragedies, the mass shootings. What, what do you um, think? Well, it's certainly true. Look, no single piece of legislation, no law can prevent every shooting. Um, 
But we know that in states that have background checks on all gun sales, for example, 46% fewer women are shot to death by intimate partners, 48% fewer law enforcement are shot to death, there's 52% fewer mass shootings. So although any action or any law that's taken cannot prevent any particular shooting, um, there's ample evidence that these measures um, do prevent gun deaths. And, of course, you know, you talk to the NRA and, and people who talk about gun rights, uh, they will say that uh, it, it's not the numbers of guns out there, it's specific bad people who have guns. I think that's uh, absolutely right. Um, and so the laws that we advocate for and that the gun violence prevention movement advocates for and that Americans overwhelmingly support uh, are would do nothing to keep guns from law-abiding Americans. We are only trying to target those people, uh, the dangerous people, felons, domestic abusers, um, certain uh, very dangerous mentally ill people who um, are the people who we want to keep guns away from. So no one is trying to, uh, you know, take guns away from law-abiding Americans. We recently, the last few weeks, uh, have done a series of programs on on mass shootings. Um, I think we're all concerned uh, we did it. We just opened the phones in one program, and it turned out to be all about guns. That's what was on people's minds that day. A whole broad range of, of views. One thing my co-host on that program brought up, and I, I brought up a, a, some frustration that I have heard from, uh, from friends who are in favor of gun control, uh, saying that the NRA has outsized power, um, you know, to control on, on Congress. My co-host, I thought, had an interesting point. He said, well... Gun control side ought to, uh, you know, inject more money, organize better, and uh, start getting some laws passed. I wonder if you're seeing that happening with those six states yes. and some more gun. I think, I think it is true for a long time that um, there was uh, an, uh, a disproportionate uh, activity on the other side of the issue. But in the last few years, and especially, again, since the Newtown shooting, and after every one of these horrible events, I think Americans are becoming more and more fed up with politicians who just kowtow to the gun lobby. So, um, again, I think the state level is the place to really see the action. We've seen it in background checks. We've seen it uh, in domestic violence laws. Um, but our organization you know, boasts more than 3 million members now. We have uh, supporters from law enforcement, survivors of gun violence, mayors, uh, moms, everyday Americans who have all come together. Um, and more and more we're seeing a groundswell of support and people getting out the message to their legislatures that uh, it's not acceptable to just listen to the other side of the issue. Uh, and I guess the very fact of every town for gun safety, which I believe is uh, a coalition combination of several groups, would indicate the movement in that direction. Correct, and we're just seeing uh, more and more support every uh, every month. Mm -hmm. uh, so you think? Uh, do you think that the, where you'll have success is at the state level? Uh, yes, um, I mean it will. You know, Congress should act, needs to act, and will act. But uh, in we can't wait for that to happen, um, and for all the reasons and in the ways that I've said, uh, states can and do um, pick up the slack and make sure that their safety measures, um, even if they don't rely on federal law, in the state those safety measures um, are as strong as they can be. 
We quote President Obama again. He says every single year, more than 30,000 Americans have their lives cut short by guns. 30,000, he repeated. Suicides, domestic violence, gang shootouts, accidents. Hundreds of thousands of Americans have lost brothers and sisters or buried their own children. It's quoting President Obama. Um, and there, there's obviously sharp disagreement on what should be done. But from your perspective, uh, the measures that you'd like to see uh, taken, wh- what what is it going to take? Where, where can we uh, have a real impact to dramatically reduce the, the numbers of Americans who are dying by gun violence? Again, the key measure, we need to make sure that we can keep guns out of the hands of the dangerous people um, who would use them to harm uh, people in their communities. So um, we're going to pass background checks, and we are going to make sure that hand, guns are in the hands of domestic abusers. Um, these measures, um, as, as I mentioned, um, are the ways that we can save lives, and it is demonstrated over and over again. Um, for example, uh, another example about background checks, you know, we, the, the president mentioned this in his speech, but um, we have a, a basically a built-in experiment where uh, Missouri, until 2007, required background checks on all gun sales. They repealed that requirement, and subsequently, gun homicides went up 25%. By contrast, Connecticut moved in the opposite direction. They enacted uh, a, a law requiring background checks on, on private gun sales um, in the 90s, and since then, gun homicides have dropped 40%. So the evidence is there. Background checks are the solution, the, the single most effective measure we can use to reduce gun violence in this country. Final question, uh, you know, just stepping, looking at this from, you know, say 30,000 feet, um, it, it's, it seems very stark to me that uh, uh, the, the sides on this issue, it, it's just gotten more and more heated. And uh, people talking past each other a lot. And I, I don't know, what do you think that's what, what would make that better? Or, or is that necessary? You just need to go to the states and get, get laws passed where you, where you can? I don't know if you're seeing the same thing or feeling the same thing. Just uh, the rhetoric just gets very heated and uh, seems like uh, uh, hope is lost on uh, getting anything done through agreement. You know, I think that's true if you listen to the talking heads uh, and if you hear the way that some politicians uh, still refuse to accept either the facts or the overwhelming opinion of their constituents. Um, but when you actually like poll on these questions, again, background checks has overwhelming support. We see it in, in every state. It's in you know, 80, excess of 80 percent of people support uh, having people having to get a background check before they buy a gun. Um, and I think that this is bearing out um, the fact that we're having such success um, getting these measures passed, I think means that uh, although you hear at the highest levels this sort of uh, intractable back and forth, um, at the end of the day, these are very common sense measures upon which almost all Americans can agree. And it's not going to, you know, once that's clear, um, it's not that hard to, to, to get these measures passed. We've been talking with William Rosen, who's counsel for Every Town for Gun Safety. Mr. Rosen, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're hearing several different perspectives on guns and violence. Earlier in the program, we heard from Liz Peake, columnist for the Fiscal Times. Coming up, we'll be hearing from Peggy Okamoto, executive director of Ceasefire Oregon. And we'll get an interesting perspective on this from filmmaker Thomas Wood. 
the email is open. We're asking you to uh, send in your perspective on this important issue via email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Love to know what you think. Uh, anything on, on the issue of guns and violence, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we have this just come in from uh, Steve. He says, does the availability of guns increase the number of suicides in this country? Absolutely it does. Having a gun handy makes suicide a simple matter of pulling a trigger, enabling uh, killing oneself to be a pretty impulsive act. People suffering feelings of depression or despondency, feelings which do pass uh, or can be worked through, can impulsively reach for a gun and kill themselves and are dead before the feelings are gone. Guns also make suicide so much easier to accomplish. What are the alternatives if a gun is not lying around? Stabbing oneself to death? Not likely. Sitting, uh, slitting one's wrists uh, is a grisly undertaking, not for the faint of heart. Suicide by pills takes a lot of forethought and planning. I see the note above about impulsivity. Uh, even suicide by hanging is much harder to accomplish than pulling a trigger. So yes, it's clear. The easy availability of guns contributes greatly to the suicide rate in this country, a fact borne out by the significantly lower suicide rates in countries where guns are not ubiquitous, as guns are here in the States. That's perspective from Steve. Thank you for that. Love to get your perspective at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We're talking about guns and violence, responding to President Obama's uh, announcement of executive action on this issue. And uh, much more to come. We have uh, Thomas Wood, filmmaker, coming up later in the program. This part of the program, we're talking with Penny Okamoto, who is executive director of Ceasefire Oregon. Thanks for uh, taking some time. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for your interest in us. Tell us about Ceasefire Oregon. What does what your group uh, do? Sure. Ceasefire, thank you very much. Ceasefire Oregon um, has actually been around uh, for 16 years. We um, actually deal with a lot of um, legislation and advocacy. We have um, another branch that's called the Ceasefire Oregon Education Foundation that's been around for 21 years. Uh, they deal with um, a lot of education, uh, including the Ask Campaign, Asking Saves Kids, and just the idea that uh, you ask um, if there's a gun in the home where your children um, are playing or going to be at for a while. Um, and we also um, really try to um, focus a lot on suicide prevention uh, because the uh, majority of um, gunshot death is actually suicide. And that group's been around for 21 years, and then we just formed a political action committee as well. Now, Oregon has been held up recently as a, as a success story, at least if you're on you know that, that particular side want to... Um, yeah. you know, on gun control side, you could call it. Um, tell me what's happened in Oregon in terms you of laws. We had um, a lot of great work that's happened in Oregon. Um, right, three days before the Clackamas, excuse me, three days before the Sandy Hook shooting, um, there was a shooting at the Clackamas Town Center, which is a mall um, in Clackamas, just outside of Portland. Um, and two people were shot to death, and another person was shot and injured. Uh, and ever since then, um, Oregonians um, have really taken up this cause. Um, and then, of course, right after Sandy Hook, um, and people have really taken up this cause, um, particularly since um, October 1st, the shooting at Roseburg at Umqua Community College, uh, people um, were really angry. After Sandy Hook, people were horrified. Now uh, people are angry that something is not being done uh, to really uh, prevent gun violence and reduce gun violence. Um, Oregon did, however, um, have some great laws that were passed in the 2015 legislative session. Uh, one was actually a background checks law, which is a universal background checks law, and it means that um, background checks must be done even for 
uh, almost all sales, uh, including private sales in the state of Oregon. Um, I'm seeing on your website, cspireoregon.org, a, uh, a plan, plan to reduce gun violence yes. by 30 to 50 percent in five years. Tell me in brief about that plan. Yeah, we're actually um, really proud of that plan. Um, and it's got three overarching goals. Um, we really don't have time to go into all the details. Um, like you said, people can go there. It's um, under our advocacy uh, heading. Um, but uh, there are three basic goals. So the first is to increase um, the increase the standards for gun ownership. So, for example, right now, when people are driving a car, uh, people have um, a certain number of moving violations, accidents, um, driving while intoxicated. Uh, a person can actually end up losing their license for a period of time. And so, in a similar fashion, we think that um, if people have um, a certain number of misdemeanors for uh, violent crimes or um, uh, drug-related or alcohol-related offenses, uh, they should lose their ability to own a gun for a period of 10 years. Right now, people who are felons cannot have a gun. People who have convictions for domestic violence misdemeanors cannot have a gun. Um, there's a, a, a list of people who are what we call prohibited uh, from having a gun. Uh, but we believe that this should be expanded. One of the reasons we believe that is because studies show that people who have these misdemeanor offenses or drug and alcohol offenses are much more likely to go on to commit a gun, um, a, a crime with a gun. So that's why we're taking a look at that and saying, let's not, you know, don't have a gun for 10 years, get your life back together, get things in order again, and then you know, think again about whether or not you really want to bring a gun into your life and, and your community. So increased um, standards for gun ownership is one. An enhanced accountability of federal licensed firearms dealers is the second one. Um, and the third is to improve safety standards for guns and gun ownership. And uh, that last one would be requiring things like um, a chamber-loaded indicator um, on a gun, which some guns do have, um, but they should be required. It's uh, something simple that's just a little something that pops up that lets you know that there's still a bullet in the chamber. Um, a magazine disconnect mechanism um, can also be placed on some guns, uh, and that's simply a button that you can uh, press. And when you press that button, the magazine pops out of the gun, and if there's a bullet in the chamber, it will not fire. Now, we know everyone says everyone should always treat guns as they're loaded, which is very true, but we also know that human beings are human beings and prone to error. And just a simple little mechanism like a, like a chamber-loaded indicator, also called a loaded chamber indicator, or an MDM, a magazine disconnect mechanism, can really save lives. Um, safe storage would fall under that as well. That A law like that could have actually prevented the Clackamas Town Center shooting. Uh, and then also um, included under that would be um, banning assault, um, high-capacity magazines, basically. Um, there's no reason why anyone needs to have a high-capacity magazine. And uh, we can argue over how many uh, bullets should be allowed. Most people say 10. Um, Ceasefire Oregon is uh, looking at six um, or fewer bullets. Um, but it's just ridiculous that people are being shot at with 30, 30 bullets at a time, 50 bullets at a time. The lethality is just is nauseating and should just simply should not be um, allowed. Uh, and then finally, um, we also recommend that um, the president appoint, uh, if you would, a gun czar, basically. Um, someone like Dr. Daniel Webster from Johns Hopkins University, who's very well versed in the research about gun violence prevention, and really take a serious look at how we're going to deal with 310 million guns that we have in the United States. 
because we, we can't really talk anymore about guns are good, guns are bad. We need to deal with 310 million guns in the United States, and we need to deal with it right now. Uh, and so that's really what Ceasefire Oregon is focusing on. Um, so we have this plan on our website. Um, it's very well annotated. Um, it has studies. It has polls that show that um, the vast majority of people, including gun owners, approve of the things that we're talking about. And then it also has a list of the laws from other states. So we know that it is the things we're proposing are constitutional. Hmm. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Penny Okamoto, who is executive director of Ceasefire Oregon. You can find out more at their website, ceasefireoregon.org. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Access U, Tom. Tom Williams. We're getting several perspectives on the issue of guns and violence. President Obama said recently America is facing a gun violence epidemic, and uh, he announced he's implementing several gun control measures by executive action. Earlier in the program, we got perspective from Liz Peake, columnist for the Fiscal Times. We heard earlier from William Rosen, counsel for Everytown for Gun Safety, and right there from Peggy Okamoto, executive director of Ceasefire Oregon. We're going to conclude the program uh, coming up just about a minute with uh, filmmaker Thomas Wood, who had an interesting perspective on this issue and wrote recently about that in Medium.com. By the way, um, all of the, uh, the links to these columns and the, the uh, organizations I've been mentioning will be on our website, upr.org. Uh, I very much hope that you will uh, reach me at our email with your perspective on this issue. The email is upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. About uh, 19 minutes left in the program, upraccess at uh, gmail.com. We're talking about uh, guns and violence. What is the solution? What should be the solution? We'll have more following the break. What if I told you you don't have to go to the gas station to fill up anymore? The gas will come to you because there's an app for that. They asked me to pop my fuel door. So I just open my fuel door. It's processing and it's done. Fuel's on the way and it's going to arrive no later than 4 p.m. today. I'm Kai Rizdal, Uber, but for how we buy gas next time on Marketplace from 8 p.m. Join us Monday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. This part of the program, we're talking with Thomas Wood, who is a filmmaker in Los Angeles and uh, encountered, uh, this was last week, recently, encountered his very interesting piece on Medium.com. It's, it's titled, We Are Our Guns, The First Step to Meaningful Change in the Conversation. And his central thesis is that uh, guns are part of uh, some people's identity, and identity is, is hard to move. Um, so, Thomas Wood, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. Um, so, let's just jump into a very interesting take on uh, on this issue. Of course, you know, there's debates back and forth about guns. President Obama weighed in, and he's uh, enacting by executive uh, order some measures. And uh, you say in this piece that we were bombarded by statistics, arguments, and articles. We share, we retweet, we rage, and you say we're doing it wrong. How yeah. so? I, I think where we're doing it wrong is um, the way that people respond to topics is they tend to align with a side, um, whether or not you say, I'm a liberal and so I believe this. Of course, nobody frames it that way. But I do think that, you know, people tend to go to their sides very quickly. And I think it doesn't matter how you argue against someone. So if someone thinks that there should be controls on guns or some sort of change, 
I sort of don't think what evidence you put against it. I think that it is always framed within a context of me versus you, our side versus them. And I've seen people, um, friends of mine on Facebook, just rage, just, just be so, so angry um, against anyone that is pro-gun, who likes guns, whatever the other side is. Um, and my, my thesis is, is it doesn't work. Uh, that if you want meaningful change, whatever that change is, and I'm not espousing any change one way or the other. I'm not saying that there should be gun control. Um, I have personal opinions on that, but this is beyond that. This is just, if there's going to be change, uh, step one, we have to change how we talk about it because there simply can't be any progress uh, made by battering people, um, even with evidence. Um, yeah, and yeah, that's a, that's a, a that's a key, isn't it? Ed? Um, you say real thinking takes effort. And we all have lives, and so so we go yeah. to thinking uh, instead of thinking we feel. If you take a word like gun control, like immediately the word gun control stops critical thought. What gun control does when I say the word aloud? Um, if we go to stereotypes, then then a liberal goes yay gun control yay, and 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 it's, it's just a feeling, just yay good gun control, and then images in their mind of, of uh, people waving guns or uh, Texans with hats that they don't like who are red in the face. I mean, just think of like all the sort of stereotypes. So their feeling is, yay, gun control. And if you say gun control and the other person hears, and maybe we'll do a conservative uh, uh, stereotype, that person says, boo, like boo gun control. And immediately, like, shut down, no, they're attacking me, they're coming after my thing, they're doing it. And I think that, I think the emotions are right in that they're human, in that they're understandable, in that this is what the argument is, is one side versus the other. But if instead of saying all that, I just say, um, hey, hey, Tom, what do you think about guns? So, okay, like, there's no agenda on that. There's just, what do you think about it? And what it opens it up to is it invites you to tell me what guns mean to you. Do you like them? Did your dad have one? Did he take you hunting? Do you believe in burglars? Do you think someone's going to attack you? Um, and and it's, not, it's not loaded. It's not a, eventually I'm going to get to a place where you slip up. It's not a gotcha thing. It's just trying to understand what matters to you. Because ultimately, what I say in the essay is you can't, you can't attack someone and tell them to change something that they believe in, change an identity that has to do with, you know, everybody that believes pro-gun control, their friends believe it, their wives believe it, their husbands believe it, their brothers believe it, they're all talking. To get that one person to change their mind is not only to have them make very critical thoughts, but also to really go against the group that they're living in. And that goes the same for the other side, too. All of this goes both ways. Like, for me, let's say I'm liberal and I'm against uh, guns or I want there to be a limit on guns, for me to suddenly be warm to guns, like, I think, that, I think it needs to go both ways. I think conservatives should be asking people to come out hunting with them or to look at their guns or to go shooting at a shooting range. In other words, I think that these things are very tied into who we are in multiple ways, not just in the sense of I love guns, but what side of the argument do I identify with? What sort of people agree with me? Do they look like me? Do they sound like me? Do they make me feel safe? And I think that the only way the conversation moves forward is if we stop asserting uh, whatever evidence we have, even if the evidence is right, and I'm not saying it is or isn't, and just ask questions and get to know one another.
that to me is step one. Let me quote a paragraph here from your, your article, again, in medium.com. And I'm talking yeah. with Thomas Wood, who's a filmmaker in Los Angeles. Uh, asking someone to change their minds is not asking them to weigh evidence and come to your same conclusion, because our minds, quote-unquote, are not composed of considered opinions, but of the tapestry of experience and social groups that makes up our identity. So to change one's mind is really to change one's identity. And, of course, that's what you've been saying. You say it cuts both ways. You have an interesting analogy. Uh, you talk about how you uh, gave up smoking. Yeah. You can talk yeah. about that and how that applies uh, here. Yeah, so uh, this will be the first time I admit this to my mother, so this is kind of funny. Uh, so, yeah, I was a smoker for, like, 11 years, and I liked it, and I was good at it, and I was very self-aware of it, like, yay, this is good, I'm a smoker, I, I'm enjoying this. And, of course, I knew it, it was killing me and it was awful. The, the thing is, is like, you know, we're built up of like habits and sort of things that we do. And I think, I think, and I don't want somebody to misconstrue that I'm saying guns are an addiction, uh, because I'm not talking about guns. I'm just talking about people and sort of things that they like in their lives and that they identify with and that they sort of like feel are a part of them. So, so this can go to anything. And I also don't want them to think like smoking is evil, therefore guns are evil, because I'm not doing that either. I'm just saying it's a thing in our lives. And if you're asking somebody to stop doing it, or to change something about it. So for me, smoking was something. And of course, people say, you should quit smoking, it's killing you. And whatever reason, I'd say no, I'd say no. Ultimately, what it came down to for me to quit, I had to really appreciate what role it played in my life. I also use the analogy of sort of an alcoholic. You have to appreciate that alcohol or cigarettes, and in my case, it was cigarettes, was sort of a part of what it, who I was. My friends smoked. When I woke up, I, I had a cigarette. It made me feel good. And physically, I, I, would, I would want it, and then I would have it, and that would give me a little moment of, of joy. I would have a meal and then look forward to it. You know, it was, a, it was a confidant. I'd be sitting in a bar with friends, hey, let's you and me go out and have a smoke. And that was a special thing. And it, it you know, when, when, when my father died, you know, I probably went out and had a smoke sometime later and really sat and thought about it. You know, and when I was happy, I would celebrate with friends and we'd go out and we'd have a smoke. You know, like, it's, it's a little thing that's just very woven into who we are. When I met my wife, it was in a bar that I went to that I loved because you could smoke in it. And, and she smoked too sometimes and we'd share that. So to give it up is asking me not to simply give up a thing which by evidence is clearly killing me and is bad. It took me appreciating of myself how integrated it was in my life, how important it was. And if I was going to give it up, I had to have something else in, re in, in replacement. Um, you know, the, the reason why it hurts to give up cocaine, give up cigarettes, give up sugary food, give up anything that sort of gives us reward or pleasure, and I think all things are kind of tied in with that, is that, you know, like, these are the things that make us happy, and they make us feel safe, and they make us feel normal. We know how to do them. And even if they're killing us, we know how to do them, and it doesn't take a lot of effort to keep going. So the point of the analogy of the smoking is to give it up, I had to become something new. And I decided to become a little bit of an athlete, and so I tested it, and I knew, okay, when I quit smoking, it's going to suck. I'm not going to be able to hang out with these friends. I'm not going to be able to um, go to bars as much. I'm not going to be able to wake up and feel this certain thing or philosophize or write in a certain way, all the things that I kind of identified with. And what I decided to take on is, I'll start, I'll start swimming. So I started swimming a bunch, and I started setting goals, and I started being 
proud of those goals. And I'd talk to people about them, and I'd say, wife, I'm, I'm uh, up to 20 laps now, and it's amazing. And then when I think of cigarettes, I'd think, ah, but that's going to affect my swimming. I know that the analogy isn't a direct corollary, but really, like, even now, I was just talking to people, like, why didn't you ever slide back? Well, the answer is, like, I like being an athlete. I like the new thing that I am. Like, I still appreciate what smoking was, but now what I want is I, I like that I feel a little bit more fit, that I'm good in a pool, that I go to foreign countries, and I like to swim in their waters and feel good about it. That, to me, is a little bit more of giving something back and not just taking something away. And I think the analogy is if you're going to ask somebody to give up guns or change their mind on really just change their mind. It's not even give up the gun. Forget the gun. Like, agree with me a little bit. Agree with me a little bit says don't just agree with me. It says disagree with all the folk that live next to you. Feel uncomfortable at those parties where everybody that you agreed with now you disagree with. Like, what an incredible thing to try and ask of somebody to leave the group they're in to leave the safety of everyone feeling like they're on the same side, that, that's an incredible ask. And I think it's naive of people in this argument, liberals, to, to be so uncompassionate. What's that? Discompassionate? To, to be so unfeeling as to just assert and demand the truth. And, and the argument that I will hear, and this, this is sort of why I wrote the thing, is they'll be like, yeah, but, but people died. But people died, and no one stuck up for them. And why should these people who support guns, why, you know, why, why do they deserve to be cared for? And the answer is like, because it, because it, it because it's the only way. And it does, of course. Then, if people died, then the best way that you respect it is you have an honest conversation about what's needed, which is people to not die, and what works. And and I just don't think it works by attacking people. So I tried to write the most reasonable, considered, measured thought piece from my philosophical training, from my years of trying to figure out how other people work and what changes their minds and how people grow and learn. Um, yeah, and some people seem to like it. And uh, you talk about this in your article, and as you were talking just now, what I was thinking about is religious conversion. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's like, let me read this, this uh, sentence. Uh, you say, do not tell a gang member to leave a gang. You ask them to join you in your home, in your church, in your community. You do not tell an atheist they're a fool. You ask them to join you in prayer, hang out and have lunch. Yeah. Yeah. To your point of similarity to religion, I very specifically was trying to write this in a neutral voice. I am not a liberal. First of all, I don't self-identify as a liberal, but I am not a liberal trying to give a code to change gun control. I'm an independent, critical thinking, feeling person who's telling liberals, if you want to change the conversation, here's how you do it. If you want to win, here's, here's how it works. And it's not even winning. It's just, you know, the thesis is getting to know one another. And, and as such, it was important to me within the essay to frame it that it's both ways. For people that are religious, the way that you have people in the example, like a gang member, like you, like if someone's in a gang, they're in a gang because a gang is safe and a gang has people that they talk like, that they sound like, that they feel like, that are faced with the same troubles, that complain about the same things, that enjoy some of the same things. You know, it's somebody to hang out with. It's a group. Like all people really want at the end of the day is like, who am I? What do I fit with? Where, you know, we're, we're, we're animals, we're pack animals, like we need that. And so you can't say, leave the gang, it's not safe. 
you got to say, come over and hang out with me. You got to offer them a new group. And, and I think, I, and again, I think this goes both ways. I think that if the NRA, I think that if people that are pro-gun think that liberals are idiots and elitists and, and going contrary to the Second Amendment, I think that, that they should stop trying to belittle their, their coastal uh, elitist ways, whatever. I'm trying to think of what people have called me or called you know, people like me. Um, you know, just say, well, why don't you come on and hunt with me? Or like, come over and look at my guns, or let's go shooting, or, um, you know, let's, let's, like, li- let's be out in the wilderness for like two or three weeks and sort of see like, how it fits into my life and um, why it's important to me. Like, I really think that it fits both ways. And again, it's not about, is, are guns right, are guns not right? It's just about how do people talk to one another? It's just about how people talk to one another, and if you start from the standpoint of trying to convince somebody else, you're not offering them anything. Yeah, I think it's probably pretty good advice. You know, I think we have a sense that whatever the debate, however we're conducting the debate right now, it's not working, and there's just you shouting past each other. Ultimately, the only way that things really like move forward, I think, is that. People, people have to learn how to ask one another questions in a way that is genuinely intended to understand where the other people are coming from, how they feel, what their lives are like, what, what matters to them, and reaching an understanding that the other person is not an enemy, but is just, you know, it's just understanding someone else's humanity. And when you start from that standpoint, then both sides, I think, are able to then say, great, like I feel listened to. I really feel like you understand what's important to me. Uh, tell me about yourself. And I think through that kind of consensus of humanity, there's an opportunity for change in one direction or the other. I think liberals would appreciate a little bit more of maybe why guns are important to people. And I think people that align with being pro-gun would feel a little more inclined toward, you know what, like people are dying, and it would be great to put measures in place in some way that would have fewer people die from guns. Very interesting, uh, very interesting points. I appreciate you uh, uh, taking some time to, to explain that to us. By the way, before I let you go, um, I just uh, wanted to pass this along to you if you weren't aware of it. I found your article through Politico, the European edition. Um, huh. John Rentoul is a uh, political scientist there in, in uh, England somewhere. And um, he was trying to parse through why uh, many members of the Labour Party there were so against Tony Blair, their former and most successful <laughs> recent prime minister. And, yeah. uh, and then he, he comes to the conclusion, he says, recently I came across an article, your article, helped explain this phenomenon. So, so that, was, that was fascinating. But I, well, I've done a very bad job at following up with, with people's responses to it, but I would like to make like sort of one last point, which yeah, is that... Certainly. Like, like one, like I think, I think people would do benefit of kind of learning how critical thinking works. And here's the other thing. People need to witness what it looks like to have an engaged, open discussion like this. So, like, it, it's all fair and good that I espouse these ideas of, like, hey, we need to ask each other questions. But, like, really, there should be, like, an hour-long two people sitting together and talking, and, it should, and you should be able to watch it. And you should be able to look over it again and be like, oh, he answered this this way, he answered that. And, like, feel what it feels like 
for someone to be asked questions in a way that is meaningful to them, that is not challenging to them, and that allows their, I don't want this to sound diminutive, but like allows their brains to work, like gives them a good space to have thoughts. Um, in the same way that I began this by saying, like, if I say the word gun control, uh, immediately you, you pick your side, your brain just reacts and you go to whichever side you feel about that. I think that the only way to get this broader point across is to witness a conversation where people can talk about stuff where someone carefully asks questions that never uses the phrase gun control. That just says, Tom, uh, what, what do you think about guns? But that's hard to do in, in a piece like this where, where it's getting, so I'm not asking that of you. But it would be a really interesting thing and a valuable thing to provide a forum, just the Socratic method, it's the same thing where you sit down and you say, what, you know, what are guns to you? What do they mean to you? Well, um, guns to me represent freedom. Great. What's freedom? Talk to me about that. And then they explain a little bit more. Great. Like, tell me how family plays into this. You know, and like, it makes someone have to generate, have to create new thoughts and new discoveries and new critical thoughts. Whereas all the surface level stuff, all the surface level arguments are, they're rote. Um, they're not thinking, they're feeling. So anyways, if, if it's possible, that, that's, what, that's what the conversation needs. It needs a single great example where you see someone ask a, a question of somebody who doesn't believe in gun control, and then, and then by the end of it they go, okay, like I feel heard and maybe there's some room on this, you know, and, and both ways. I think I really think it goes both ways. Yeah. Thanks for yeah. indulging me there. We have been talking with Thomas Wood, filmmaker in Los Angeles. His very interesting piece uh, was published recently in uh, medium.com. And thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We hope that you'll keep the discussion going on this important issue, and you can send emails to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. There's one more email. I want to get this in at the end of the program here. We'll go shortly to our next program. Uh, this is John in Moab. He says, I know this is going to sound harsh, so let me preface this by saying that I am a liberal-slash-socialist Democrat who has never voted Republican-conservative in my life. We all feel the tragedy of those news items where someone goes into a public place and kills randomly, and we all feel just about torn in half over the sad domestic violence seen in the daily life of being a member of our human race. But I question the fear and condemnation utilized by this anti-gun movement. He makes two points. One, if we really are so interested in saving lives, we need to consider single-payer national health system. He adds parenthetically, which would also provide national uh, provide mental health services. And two, then we need to look at the numbers, such as 700,000 killed each year by cigarettes, and last year auto accidents killed roughly 40,000 Americans. That's John in Moab. As I mentioned, keep the comments coming to upraxis at gmail.com. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we'll have an interesting discussion with some editorial cartoonists. Um, and we'll talk about the art of cartooning and also Charlie Hebdo and other uh, issues. That's coming up tomorrow. Hope you join me then. Thanks for listening today. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.